0: Welcome to Question Mark, the podcast, exploring the greatest story ever told, with open minds and open hearts.
1: Light it up we won't come down and the sun can't stop us now watching it come true it's taking over you this is the greatest show where it's covered in all the colored lights and the runaways are running the night impossible comes true it's taking over you this is the greatest show
2: hello and a very very warm welcome to question mark a fortnightly podcast about Mark's Gospel. Uh, We're very pleased that you chose to spend these moments with us today, and uh, we're aiming to pick out some key points from the passage. So you don't have to have a Bible with you to look at the passage, but if you've got one, I'm sure you will enjoy looking back at previous references and things. My name is David Payne, and I'll be your host for this, the 61st episode. Can you believe that, Steph? In our journey through Mark's Gospel. Today, we are delighted to have Ted Trost with us. Got yet another new guest, Steph. Where do you find them? I don't know. Um, Ted is Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. Uh, He's written a master's thesis on Mark's gospel. So, you know, I I think I'm fairly confident in believing what he says. But this is really interesting. He's working on a commentary of Mark's gospel called The Gospel of the Unnamed. Really welcome. uh, Really warm welcome to you, Ted. Uh, The Gospel of the Unnamed? What's that? What's that about?
1: Uh, the argument the argument for the for the book is that the Gospel is really designed to elevate the the last and the least uh, as they're represented in Mark's Gospel. And these people are almost invariably unnamed in Mark's Gospel. So I want to focus on the stories of the unnamed. Simon's mother-in-law would be the first example yeah. who, who, after she's healed by Jesus, turns around and starts serving others. She's paradigmatic for the, the people that I'm interested in looking at. Fantastic. Brilliant. And
2: I think you we met you at Edinburgh. That's the connection you have with, with Steph. Did you enjoy the production? Uh, the Fringe last summer, summer 2022 at the Edinburgh Fringe. And um, yeah, we met you there, which is great. Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, I was on a sabbatical and I was working on some of this uh, Gospel of the Unnamed. Uh, and some other projects of uh, having to do with violence in America uh, and the Beatles Um, and uh, had had the opportunity to to see uh, Stefan's um, presentation. I went with my sons uh, during the Fringe and we started a conversation that's continuing to till today.
2: Really great to have you. And at this point, I usually say everyone knows Steph, so I won't introduce him but it's possible that we've got people who are listening who haven't met you or don't know much about you. Um, Would you like to tell us about why why you're doing what you're doing and what I Am Mark is all about?
3: Uh, Yeah, Um, I Am Mark is a solo word for word dramatisation of Mark's Gospel. Um, When it's done in full, it is the whole thing, but normally I do a slightly truncated version. I did it at the Edinburgh Fringe, as Ted just said, and why I do it, because I love it. At least the more I look at it, the more I perform it, the more I fall in love with it. The more I do this podcast, the more I want to read. It's Mm. just the most exhilarating ride in my spiritual life so far. And uh, all I can say is recommend this podcast to you and indeed Mark's Gospel in general.
2: Thank you. And in case people missed it at Edinburgh
3: last year, can they see you again? Yeah, I'll actually be at Edinburgh again this year. Uh, Thanks for that nice plug there. Good thank you, David. Yeah, so from the 7th through to the 19th of August, I'll be at Charlotte Chapel near Princes Street in Edinburgh and uh, won't be there on every day, but most days in those dates. And uh, so I look forward to seeing you if you happen to be there.
2: Great, thank you. Now, we all know you. We know you both. So um, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Today's passage is entitled Jesus' Trial Before Pilate. We're in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. He's been betrayed, arrested in the middle of the night, then questioned by the high priest, and a long passage about Peter denying him, and now it's time for his
4: Very early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him! They shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified.
2: We're going to try and look at a few points then, and incorporate some questions and thoughts from Question Mark Facebook group. Uh, first question that came from the group: Oh, that was me actually. But um, why were the chief priests and other religious leaders so opposed to Jesus? We're familiar with the story, and we probably know the outcome, but it does seem extreme for them to want him to to be killed, at least to our 21st century minds, doesn't it? Do you want to start with that, Ted?
1: Uh, Sure, that's a great question. Um, Jesus encounters opposition almost from the start of Mark's gospel. Uh, And by chapter three, uh, the Pharisees conspire with the Herodians to destroy him. Uh, in the in in the one version of the text, um, and this is because he undermines their authority. Uh, people ask, "Who? What is this?" A, a teaching with authority. Um, they're not used to that. the uh, the The leaders' um, authority is being undermined by Jesus's activity. This becomes very clear uh, when he comes to Jerusalem itself. First of all, the crowd seem to be on Jesus's side. Uh, so they they say Hosanna and so forth and welcome him, and he comes to the temple. And the temple is this institution that uh, that that polices the relationships among the Romans and the Jews. So the temple collects money that is subsequently given to the Romans. Uh, so the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes are part of this larger system that Jesus says is corrupt. Uh, he undermines their whole existence. This is this is very clear in chapter twelve, when uh, a young scribe asks Jesus, "What's the great greatest commandment?" And he says, "To love your na- love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with a- all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself." And the scribe responds, "You have spoken rightly. This is more important than all the rituals of the temple." That's the end. That's the end of the temple right there. Uh, and that's why Jesus is a threat to these people. He he goes on to, to point to a woman who puts a tiny little coin in the treasury and says she's given more than all these other people. So the economy of the temple is under threat uh, because of the things that Jesus says and does. And historically speaking, the temple itself has been destroyed anyways. So the question then arises, what was the worth of that institution among the people uh, who were uh, followers of jesus but jews mm. and the response that mark's gospel makes is you don't need the temple <laughs> you just need jesus
3: mm. wow right. do you want to add to that step no that's a fantastic that. answer i love that thank you very mm. much ted <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay you get on to your points now then so so what do you want to say steph what do you
3: want to say what do i want to say about jews? this passage or about the question yeah about about this passage i think for me as i read it again it's the it's the question of what how to how to perform it actually or really and truly what actually is going on why do people act in certain ways how do they say the words that are ascribed to them what do they mean and you know for in every passage in mark's gospel i've got to get my head around those sorts of questions and this one is particularly difficult it's so all sorts of uncertainties actually on first reading and, and so then I,
2: also present it to other people present it
3: to the audience absolutely mm-hmm. so i've got to be firm in my own mind about what yes. it means or yes. at least have an have an idea i'm not mm. pretending to know absolutely you know that i know exactly what it means and that everyone else is wrong but i need to have some idea And uh, unless I do, it becomes very difficult to convey something meaningful to the audience. You're right. You're right. Absolutely right. So that's what's so intriguing, because there there are all sorts of questions in my mind, um, which we really do need to answer. They deserve an answer. Um, For example, why does Pilate say, um, are you the king of the Jews? And how does he say it? Is it with respect? Is it mocking? Is there something else going on? What sort of tone of voice? Because that is crucial in understanding his role. And there are other parts in this story as well, which have a similar difficulty, it seems to me. we better okay. have some answers. Ted, have you got
1: some answers for yeah, us? Yeah, well, um, uh, several. So let, me, let me start with um, focusing on the issue of King of the Jews. Yeah. And say that you perform earlier um, an exchange with a King of the Jews, that is Herod, uh, who... Sentences to death, John the Baptist. This is in chapter six of of Mark's gospel. And and I think we're dealing with a similar issue here. The issue is the arrogance or the indifference of power. Uh, And so Herod uh, Herod is being um, uh, criticized by John the Baptist for his marital arrangement with his brother's wife. but he doesn't want to do away with John because John amuses him. Nevertheless, when he invites his daughter to dance for him, which seems kind of an odd thing, um, he promises that he'll give her half of his up to half of his kingdom if she performs this dance. and he makes this oath in front of other people. Um, and she asks for John's head on a platter, and he's a little disappointed because, john amuses him but nevertheless to keep his oath to the others he has john executed that's that's the indifference of of the power structure as it's presented in mark's gospel so one answer to your question is um take Herod as a cue <laughs> that's mm-hmm. how pow- power operates
0: mm-hmm. and
1: pilate is part of the same power system cuz herod answers to rome and Pilate is a representative of Rome and he's in That's Jerusalem true. to make sure that there's not disorder during the during the festival. So in the case of Pilate your your question where does this king of Ju- the Jews idea come in is an intriguing one. Where did he get that idea that Mark's not clear on this. Mm. In in Mark's gospel in chapter uh 14 the previous chapter Jesus is condemned by the chief the the chief priests the elders and the scribes because he is asked are you uh, the Messiah the son of the blessed his response is I am he identifies himself with this name of God uh, and then he goes on to say something about the fate of the son of the Son of man but it's on that on Jesus's mention of the words I am he's he's saying God's name that they convict him of blasphemy Right. So that's what they've got on him. But apparently that's not what they tell Pilate is wrong, because that's not a very good argument. I mean, the Roman, he doesn't care if if Jesus is claiming to be a Jewish God. That's that doesn't that's no harm to him. But somehow this language about king of the Jews has crept in. Yes. And Mark Mark doesn't tell us how it got there. But that's But that's uh, but that's suggestive of a power struggle. If there's a if there's an alternative king of the Jews. To the one that they paid off, i.e., Herod, then Rome might be in trouble.
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> and so, so, so possibly I, I would think we have to speculate here because yeah. there's a gap in the text, and you, so yeah. you have to, as a, uh, as a dramatist, you have to figure this out. But um, it seems to me that we've switched from blasphemy because what does what does Pilate care about blasphemy? To this alternative king, yeah. and that's the problem. Uh, that's a problem in a, in a time when there are competing political forces, Barabbas is identified as an insurrectionist later in this text, so there is a possibility of revolution in the air, uh, and as a consequence, the pilot doesn't want to hear anything about that, but of course Jesus says, and that, that's, you know, I'm not even going to get involved in this conversation. That's not who I am. I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm I mean, not- that,
3: That's the other question, Ted, about Jesus's reply, but just coming back to what you were saying, I totally agree and understand that now, that the idea is that the king of the Jews has a political edge, which isn't in the um, the confession of Jesus earlier on before the high priest. That's a different order of kingship. Um, and of course, from Pilate's point of view, that's a threat to, to say king of the Jews. Um, I, I'm just wondering how he says, um, "Are you the King of the Jews?" Is it with disdain? Is it with mockery? Is it with fear? There are all sorts of possibilities with the tone. But I, I love the other point you made just there about Jesus's reply, because I, I, for me, I think it's it's a bit equivocal what Jesus says. It, yes, it is as you say. It seems to be saying, um, "No, that's nothing to do with me." On the other hand, he is saying at the same time to be saying. It is actually something to do with me. So there's a there's a an affirmative and a negative going on at the same time. So I, I'm just wondering whether Jesus is agreeing with the fact that he is a king, <laughs> but he's not a king of the Jews in the way that Pilate says or the yeah. thinks he's not a political king, he's a king mm-hmm. in another way, completely beyond Pilate's understanding.
1: Well, yes, okay. Um <laughs> That's that's uh, that that's one that's one approach in in my opinion Jesus is not interested in kingship. He's interested in the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's what's happening right now. God's kingdom has has intervened. That's what he's been saying since the beginning and he's inviting people to to participate in this kingdom. Uh, Repent and believe in the good news or believe in the gospel. That is enter into this story world would be one way to talk about it. The woman who anoints Jesus with oil has has entered into that story world. Why? Because she has prepared him beforehand for burial, not for kingship, for burial. She understands that that's the fate of the son of man, contrary to Peter, who doesn't like that narrative trajectory. Um, Jesus rejects this title of king. He doesn't want to be the son of David. Um, how can how could he be the son? Of, how what? Why does David call the uh, the Messiah Lord? Um, he yeah. he asks in chapter twelve, and the answer is he can't be David's son yeah. if David calls him Lord. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that, the whole idea of a Davidic style kingship, etc., is 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 foreign to Jesus's way of thinking. Um, Jesus's idea of kingdom doesn't have anything to do with towering over other people. The the image for it is a weed. (laughs) It's the mustard weed in chapter four that grows democratically all over the Galilean countryside. That's the kingdom of God. It's it's not the the tall cedar tree that towers above all others. Uh, And so this this king of, of the Jews narrative, I think my guess would be here that just like Pilate just as Pilate understands that um, the the chief priest and so forth are jealous of Jesus, he sees right through that. He he I think I think Pilate understands that they're just making stuff up. I see. It, yeah. To try to get rid of Jesus.
3: Even, even from the beginning. So he yeah. understands that even from the beginning. Understood. Yeah, it's really good.
1: That's yeah. what that that would be my guess. Yeah. Um, um that that Pilate understands that. And so um <laughs> I would, I would maybe even, uh, you know, if I if I were playing with this, I would say, Pilate says, "Are you the so-called king of the Jews?"
4: Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> he doesn't, he he sees that that's just a a rhetorical technique on the part of these people that he has to get along with at one level, but he doesn't really uh, respect the chief priests and scribes and elders. They they they're, they they have an a, an economical arrangement that that needs to be maintained. But he doesn't, you know, They're he's uh, he sees what they're up to. They just want to get rid of Jesus, and they want him to do it.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so uh, because if they do it, uh, that that causes problems with other people who have been following Jesus, and that's the, why they decide subsequently to rile up the crowd. They realize that the, it's the threat of the crowd that will really convince Pilate to do what they want him to do.
3: Yeah, I guess Pilate is the only one who can kill Jesus, anyway. I mean, they're not allowed to commit a capital crime, a capital, or are they?
1: Well, well, that's, that's I, I think that's an unclear. We we were talking about this earlier, um, uh, off camera, uh, that um, if you if you're familiar with Monty Python and the Stoning of of uh, Blasphemers, um, Stoning was a possibility. Certainly in the Book of Acts, Stephen is stoned. So there is some authority to to put people to death, but I think the problem for the chief priests is that um, uh, uh, putting to, Jesus to death would focus the this the the wrath or the reaction on them. Yeah. They don't want that because that causes dissension among their supporters and among their followers and among the people who they tax and among the people who come to the temple. And up so to
3: And up to now, the crowd have actually been very positive towards Jesus, haven't they? Exactly. And the chief priests recognize that, and they're afraid of them. So it doesn't make sense to kill him themselves. Yeah.
1: They know they have to manipulate the crowd somehow, and they have to get Herod to do their, uh, sorry, Pilate to do their dirty work. Yeah. And that's what's, that's lurking behind this uh, uh, encounter. So
2: Interesting. Uh, at this stage, can I introduce one of our listeners' questions? Gareth is a faithful friend on um, Facebook uh, question mark group, and he says uh, the chief. Uh, when he looks at this passage, he sees carpman drama triangles everywhere: victor, victim, and villain. And the chief priests see themselves as victims of the villain Jesus, and call on the victor pilot to solve the problem. Uh, I know you've, you've read the the. the The rest of the question, there's quite a lot to it. I just wonder what you think about that or whether you think Jesus doesn't take part at all and he's not involved in the triangle or what do you what do you make of that, Ted?
3: Can I I go first? Is that right? What do you make of that, Ted? Thank you. you. I mean, I was thinking from a drama point of view, what's interesting to me is the idea that this is this is like a repetition of a previous scene. Not so much that the main structure here isn't so much what's going on within the scene, as in what's happened already in the story. And in fact, there are probably two scenes, I think, that this is a repetition of. There's the trial of Herod, the trial of John, John the Baptist, as Ted's just described it. There's also Jesus' trial for the Sanhedrin and the chief priests. And it's almost the same. If you look at the text, it's like a little changes, but basically it's a mirror of the previous the trial in the previous chapter so that's what's interesting from a from a dramatic point of view and uh, i'm not really sure you can also ascribe a particular persona to the individuals the protagonists in this story for me pilot is a fluctuating uh, villain if you like um because he's immediate. he, he is a, on the one hand the one who puts jesus to death he is on uh, and and on that hand too he's the one who's indifferent to jesus as ted explained but at the same time he does actually speak up for jesus so there's a kind of moving backwards and forwards in terms of our estimation of him so i'm not so sure about drama triangles but i'm fascinated by the idea of structure anyway in the text
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with the, the, the move to the dramatic analysis of the various motivations because I do think as in as in all drama the, the, the they, they switch. they aren't they aren't fixed. Yeah. Um, we have to also deal with the, the fact that that this is um, this is the, the identification of Jesus as victim here seems to me me to be a, a bit uh, strained. Because Jesus knows that this is the way the story is supposed to go <laughs> at, at a certain level. That this is that he has somehow brought together, I think, what I would say is the, um, uh, from, from the Hebrew Bible, the notion of the son of man as he appears in the clouds of glory and um, uh, uh, reserves, uh, re, uh, receives the honor from the nations. um. Uh, it, with the suffering servant of Isaiah, who, um, who endures tribulation on behalf of the nation, or is, a, is, is the nation itself, in the, in the Hebrew Bible at least. This becomes part of who Jesus says the Son of Man is, and that story includes um, being handed over uh, to, the, to this constabulary, to be being arrested, tried, killed and then resurrected. So there's the resurrection comes at the end, which is nice, but there's this other stuff in between. And Jesus accepts that that is his narrative. So he's not a a victim here um, in the the traditional sense. On the other hand, he is a victim in the sense of uh, 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 experiencing the indifference of power as most people experience it. That is to say that you know we, we look at this and say, well thank goodness I'm not Barabbas or I'm not I'm not rested off the street and thrown in jail like uh, like Jesus has like what's happened to Jesus but in fact the the indifference, the arrogance uh, of power during uh, Jesus's time is what's at stake here and Jesus then as God's representative or even go me as God himself undergoes, what the least of these in their culture, but then I would say also our culture experience people tossed in jail, people who experience the uh, you know pow- power manipulation and have no voice. Jesus is undertaking that role in this text, and I would, but not as victim as as someone in solidarity with humanity. Um, humanity at, the, at, at, at its most basic form, because after all, that's what it means to be last of all and slave of all. Um, uh, and, and so this this kind of radical overturning of the way the world operates is the kind of kingdom Jesus is inviting people to participate in. And that again, that's why I don't like the language of Jesus as king of the Jews, because that's not what his kingdom looks like at all. Um, I think Acts catches this nicely when it says, when it describes uh, Jesus's followers as people who are turning the world upside down. That's exactly what happens. If you think of mm-hmm. a pyramid with like the king on top and the, and the um, normal people down here on the bottom, and there's a lot of them down there, what what the Gospel of Mark does is turn that upside down. <laughs> mm. Mm. Brilliant. Steph, do you want to
3: add anything to that? Oh, yeah. No, no, that's that's fantastic. I, was, I think for okay. me, there's slight um, I have a slight disagreement about the, the and it's a nuanced one about king kingship, but we can come back to that on another day, Ted. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I think I think the um yeah you know the other questions um around the drama. Uh, you know what's going on with with Barabbas. I think that's another another huge question. Mm. I remember talking about this when when I first actually performed this in in my own school assembly. Uh, one of the one of my colleagues came up to me and said, "You know what Barabbas means, don't you?" And then he began to explain that from his point of view, Barabbas was a, a villain, uh, and Jesus was totally innocent, and Jesus was exchanged for the one who was evil and it's he 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 suggested that that's basically a this, a kind of a, a sign for us a, an indication of what jesus did on the cross that he died for us our, our, our sinful humanity um and he was the innocent one who took our place now i i i was i remember at the time feeling actually yeah that sounds really plausible but the more i look at it and the more i look at mark's gospel the less i think that's likely and And for me, the whole question of Barabbas is the interesting one. it's It's because what is it about Barabbas that was so attractive to the crowd? Mm. why why does the why do the chief priests get away with it? They stir up the crowd to get him to release Barabbas instead. It seems to me from the the language that was used, the the fact that Barabbas is called an insurrectionist, um, mm-hmm. that he was he had committed murder in the uprising suggests he is a political revolutionary of one kind or another. And oh. for the Jews at that time, at Passover, when nationalistic um, fervor would have been quite quite pumped up, um, to appeal to that element oh. in the crowd was a really good tactic on the part of the chief priests. So it's possibly, possibly oh. you speculate, that's the reason. And why it's important is not because of some degree of, you know, is it a kind of, Um, uh, an indication of penal substitution I I don't I don't find that at all what I what I think is important about that is about the kind of the kind of um kingdom for want of a better word (laughs) that Jesus represents which is the opposite of trying to wrest power by force and by violence which is what the the what Barabbas symbolizes um Jesus is someone who is completely nonviolent, and brings in a completely different kind of kingdom. It's a bit like what Ted was saying about the way in which God's way of doing things completely oh, upends our, our human way of thinking. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what my thought is. I don't know what Ted had to say about, about that. Uh,
1: I pretty much uh, pretty much agree with you. I'd point out that when Jesus is um, arrested in the garden, uh, um he it's time to put away the sword the the uh he he submits to to that arrest he's abandoned by all of his uh, disciples but he he undergoes arrest and and then um uh and then this this story unfolds as far as um the uh, one can't one can't from where i where i stand or sit at the moment one can't hear the the word insurrectionist and not think about what happened in the capital of Washington, D.C. in, in Janu- on Epiphany, January 6th, 2020. Um, and and this was also in the name of, of nationalism, so I think you're right on there. And certainly in Mark's time, again, I, I date the writing of Mark to be after 70, very soon after 70, very soon after the, the temple is destroyed, because that creates great anxiety. Um, uh, uh, among Jesus's followers, many of whom were the headquarters of, of the movement at the time, was Jer- Jerusalem uh, and gathering in the courts of the temple. So now that the temple is destroyed, what what do we do? And the temple was destroyed because of insurrectionists like Barabbas, and the Romans came in and just and, and just destroyed the place. So um, so yeah, I, th- I think you're exactly right that that. Um, Barabbas rings those bells um, as a a nationalist hero, um, and that is how, ironically, the chief priests uh, uh, and scribes are able to stir up the crowd. And I say ironically because that's ultimately, historically speaking, what leads to the destruction of the temple itself.
3: And that's why it's so important, isn't it, to read Mark's gospel in the context it was written in as much as it, it's describing the Jesus's time, because the context it was written in, as you rightly say, is around uh, probably after the destruction of the temple. And these ideas about revolution and so on are very, very current and painful actually for, mm-hmm. the, for the people. And and Mark's pointing out that this this way of revolution is, is not the way, it's not God's way. That what God wanted, what, who Jesus is, is the kind of Messiah uh, which is against this, I- this idea of a nationalistic figure who's going to to free the people from oppression.
1: And, and practically speaking, Mark's gospel is saying, um, don't, don't, don't be disturbed about the absence of the temple. You don't need the temple. You've got Jesus. He's gone ahead of you to Galilee. Follow him. That's all you need. Get out of Jerusalem. You don't yeah. need you don't need the temple, you don't need this stuff. It's destroyed. Yes, but it was already destroyed in the middle of chapter 12 when when uh when the uh when the scribes said that that uh that the um uh, uh that uh, love the love the glory your God and love your neighbor as yourself is the great commandment that under that undermines everything else that happens in the temple. <laughs> Um, The temples and then next comes chapter 13, where Jesus predicts the the destruction of the temple. So Mark is reassuring about this revolution that has uh, has occurred unsuccessfully, uh, unsuccessful uh, insurrection that Barabbas perhaps represents in this text um, as as a failed way, historically speaking, to deal with Roman rule. Um,
3: I think think it's interesting from my point of view that in chapter 13, Jesus prophesies about the insurrection to some extent and says, if you hear someone say, I'm the Messiah, you know, don't don't follow them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm wondering for me whether I could date the writing of Mark's gospel as just before the destruction of the temple, as in Mark is writing to warn people who are believing in this idea of the Messiah being some kind of nationalistic figure. No, you've got it completely wrong. But I totally agree with your view in general terms there. Um but I'm just wondering, Ted, um, about what it means for us as 21st century people. Yes. Uh, you mentioned the the insurrection at Capitol Hill very recently, but what what is what is this this idea of violence versus non violence or God's kingdom versus the kingdom of power, which we've been talking about? What's what's that got to do with us? Can can you answer that question? Uh,
1: well, this is something I've been giving. Uh, uh, uh some thought about because it's a recurring theme in in mark's gospel but then it's also uh a, a bad interpretation of this i think um is is central to in my case american identity that is this idea that um uh one uh, ventures out on his or her own and um makes a name for oneself and uh just I, I don't mean to get political here, but uh, the, the, the sort of paragon of this, the, the primary example of this would be someone who puts their, their own name on everything they touch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, buildings, stakes, well, vineyards, universities, and so forth. So we have this notion of greatness, in other words, yeah. that involves, uh, involves making a name for yourself. And this is why I'm so interested in the unnamed characters in Mark's gospel, because they're not about that. They're about something else. They're about, uh, uh, the best example of this is in chapter nine, when uh, the disciples argue on the road, who is the greatest among them, right? Uh, They have just had an unsuccessful encounter with a young man who writhes on the ground uh, from perhaps epileptic epileptic fits none of them were able to exercise the demon and now they're asking who is the greatest among them and this is the irony is classic mark and 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 jesus says that humility is is the is the answer to who is the greatest you must be last of all and servant of all um, and and then they say oh that's an interesting idea by the way we saw this guy casting out demons in your name uh, and we made him stop and here again marks irony this guy unnamed is doing exactly what they were unable to do <laughs> he's exercising people successfully he's doing the work of the kingdom uh and not asking any not telling anybody his name even and um and they make him stop because he's not part of he hasn't been authorized by their committee <laughs> uh the of the of insiders um so to, to me, it, you know, like um, it, it's it says the, this notion that you have to make a, a name for yourself to individualize that greatness is uh, what, what we think of as being great. America has this huge problem about policing the world and so forth. Um, th- to me, this seems like way off track in c- comparison to what the Gospel of Mark has to offer us as a paradigm of, of greatness. Mm-hmm.
3: It's, that's brilliant, Ted, and and just to add a little bit of a, a note to that, not something I've thought through carefully enough yet, but it's something that's intrigued me in reading about this uh, passage and preparing for the podcast. I came across this idea by a guy called boomenschein who talks about how Jesus represents um, this non-violent approach to evil, and the uh, the other approach is to be a to take a violent approach. In other mm-hmm. words, you use violence to justify uh you justify it because it's against evil, and that's the way human beings generally try to deal with with evil, but Jesus has a completely different view i i'm yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by that. I must say it kind of it makes me wonder a bit like your comment that we've we've basically got it all wrong in the way we we yeah. le- we lead our lives and the way in which we organize ourselves politically that we we seem to want to do things the wrong way and jesus is telling us or showing us a completely different way of doing things completely different way of life
1: well i think
3: against
2: us gentlemen we're running out of time unless you want one last point ted
1: well i I would just say that 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 subsequently is what jesus means by saying what the great commandments are and that's what love your neighbor as yourself uh implies you're not gonna you're not gonna stab yourself in the heart (laughs) uh you wouldn't do that and you shouldn't do that to your neighbor either (laughs) wow
2: Wow. brilliant how absolutely fascinating thank you ted and Stepan. uh thank you so much for taking time to share your thoughts with us it's been a lot of fun and completely enlightening as it always is uh and we've enjoyed having you with us too lovely listener we hope you'll check out the website iam-mark.com and the facebook community but that's all we have time for today so it's goodbye from Ted Trost in Alabama. Yes. And goodbye from Stefan Smart in Southampton. Bye. And from me until next time, goodbye. Thank you for coming.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Question Mark and don't want to miss any future episodes, be sure to click on the subscribe button. This also means other people can find the podcast and join the conversation too. We'd also love if you could leave a review so we know what was good and what we can improve for future episodes. If you want to find out more about I Am Mark, Stefan Smart's solo word-for-word dramatisation of Mark's gospel, go to wwwsleekbio Mark, where you can sign up for free for his newsletter and a whole host of other goodies. Join us and our special guests next time, where we'll continue to explore the greatest story ever told together. If you want to get involved with the podcast or have any questions or comments in the meantime, please do get in touch using the I Am Mark social media channels. We'd love to hear from you.
1: We light it up, we won't come down And the sun can't stop us now Watching it come true, it's taking over you This is the greatest show Where it's covered in all the coloured lights And the runaways are running the night Impossible comes true, it's taking over you This is the greatest show